And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. While you're turning there, it dawned on me this morning, I hadn't talked about um, for too long at least, uh, I got a chance this morning, as I do some mornings, um, to uh, wander around and listen into some of the Sunday school classes that are going on. If you're not coming at 9 o'clock and participating in one of these Sunday school classes, let me tell you, you are missing out. The teaching that is going on in there, the fellowship that is going on in there, I brought a tear to my eye this morning. So please, church is starting an hour later for many of you. 10 o'clock service. Come on 8.30, have a great coffee, breakfast, sandwich, donuts, support the youth missions that way. Bring it on downstairs and meet some people and hear some amazing teaching at 9 o'clock and join us at 10. That's how we've set it up for you and um, love to see more of you down there. It's fantastic. Okay, Acts 27, we're in the midst of a mini-series within our series on the book of Acts. And we have been looking at how the, the Apostle Paul finishes well. Finishes well his life and ministry so that we might follow his example in finishing well ourselves. So far we've seen Paul finishing well by striving to keep his conscience clear before God and man, by trusting in God alone, and by focusing on the resurrection of the dead. This morning, we will see Paul finishing well by something I'm calling expecting the unexpected. Expecting the unexpected. And like Paul, we too, if we want to finish well, should expect the unexpected. What do I mean by expecting the unexpected? Well, I'm so glad you asked. But first, let's read about some of the unexpected in Paul's last journey, shall we? Your Bibles are open to Acts 27. You can follow along if you like in your Bibles. I won't have the words on the screen for you this morning because instead, I am so glad that Paul is on the move again because I get to play with my little animated maps. Have you missed them? You haven't even noticed they're gone, have you? I miss them. They're really cool, so I'm really glad we get to play with the map. So the map will kind of keep pace with the narrative if... Tom and I have it uh, organized just right. You can kind of follow Paul along as we read in Acts 27, beginning in verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship. You can see the pronoun we shows up again. We haven't seen it for a while indicating to most at least that now Luke somehow is with Paul on this ship. The detail of the storm that follows really smacks of someone who was there. We boarded a ship from Adram... Oh boy, I should have practiced that one. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonia a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in his kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship, Alexandria from Egypt, an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. 
We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmone, or Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. The fast of that year, 60 A.D., was around October 5. The winter winds would start around that time. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster, I had a lot of fun with that on the map, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboats secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing they would run, against, uh, run aground on the sandbar of Sirtis, that's uh, from northern Africa, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, thus making it impossible for them to navigate and know where they were, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand at trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. You know, hey, be right back. We're just going to check the bow anchors. And they were, you know. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, 
Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Now one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And when daylight came, they did not recognize the land. But they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Once safely ashore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining, welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. Those are the Gemini twins of the constellation Gemini, thought to be um, the gods of safe navigation. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Petioli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns or the three inns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. This is the very word of God. Amen? 
Amen. Expecting the unexpected in order to finish well. What do I mean by expecting the unexpected? Many of you will recall that Luke, our author of Acts, seems to, in many instances, be telling the story of Paul in a way that Luke is intentionally trying to compare or draw comparisons between Paul and Jesus. Remember? You see up on the screen a a few of those comparisons we looked at soon after Paul left Ephesus on the way to Jerusalem for the last time. And in the story before us today, there's at least one more comparison, I think, that, that Luke seems to be making between Jesus and Paul. See what you think. In his Gospel, Luke tells us that as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely set out, that's the NIV, literally in Greek, Jesus fixed his face on Jerusalem, or set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. The idea being that Jesus in Luke 9 is especially now determined to go to Jerusalem to complete his mission. His determination no doubt deepened in part in Luke 9 because Moses and Elijah have just spoken to Jesus about completing his mission when they met with Jesus at Jesus' transfiguration earlier in the same chapter in Luke. In any event, Luke tells us Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem for the last time in Luke 9. But here's one interesting thing. Luke doesn't have Jesus get to Jerusalem until ten chapters later. Jesus doesn't get there until Luke 19. Luke has Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, the culmination of Jesus' mission, for ten chapters. Now in Acts, Luke does something similar with Paul. Paul announces his determination to go to Rome, the culmination of his mission, in Acts 19. But Luke doesn't have Paul get to Rome until nine chapters later. Paul doesn't get there until Acts 28. Well, what's up with that? In case we miss what seems to some, including me, Luke's intentional comparison between Jesus and Paul here, look at what Luke just happens to tell us. Right after Jesus decides to go to Jerusalem, Jesus sends messengers ahead of him through Samaria. And just look look what Luke tells us happens right after Paul decides to go to Rome. Paul sends Timothy and Erastus ahead of him through Macedonia. Hmm. Why include that detail? In in, in writing his gospel and now acts this way, Luke seems to be drawing a comparison between Jesus and Paul as each make their way to the city where they will complete their mission. And of course, the question is why? What's Luke up to with this comparison? One suggestion. In my opinion, one reason at least Luke makes sure to include in his story the long, hard road between the moment Jesus and Paul decided to complete God's mission and the moment they, in fact, completed God's mission, Luke writes his story this way in order to highlight, to tell his readers that completing God's mission is indeed a long, hard road. 
Following Jesus means taking up your cross. Following Jesus means facing certain persecution. Following Jesus means squeezing through the narrow gate. Following Jesus means taking a long, hard road. Well, now you might say, well, that doesn't sound very seeker-sensitive, Pastor. And you're right, it doesn't. But on second thought, let me ask you, is it truly seeker-sensitive to guarantee health and wealth when you come to Jesus? Is it truly seeker-sensitive to tell you that when you come to Jesus, your best life now will necessarily include worldly definitions of success? Is it truly seeker-sensitive to tell you your life will be a lark, whatever that means, that life will necessarily be easy? Is it truly seeker-sensitive to preach that false gospel when it's, well, a lie? Or is it more seeker-sensitive to share God's repeated warning throughout the Bible and including here in Luke and Acts that when you make a decision for Christ especially, it's a long, hard road when that in fact is the truth. For me to guarantee you health and wealth when you come to Jesus would be be like inviting you to walk through that door in the back of the church, walk through a door, but not telling you that once you cross the threshold, someone on the other side is going to lunge at your head with a hammer. Maybe that's a little too graphic, sorry. So, do I just not mention that tiny little detail? Because I so badly want you to walk through the door. Do I wait to tell you about the lunging hammer guy only after you get whacked on the head and are lying there bleeding on the floor wondering what in the world just happened? Oh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, The thing about walking through the door, uh, you see, when you stand for Jesus, well, you kind of sort of set yourself up to take a beating from the enemy. Didn't I mention that? But hey, at least you're saved. I um I didn't think I should mention it because it's what we call a non-essential to salvation and and so we don't tell that to people up front because you know otherwise they won't come through the door. And if they don't come through the door, they can't help fill the offering plate. So yeah. Oh, look out. Here the guy comes again. Quick. Pray the prayer of Jabez 10 times. Quick. Don't forget it. Run. And you know, duck. If you would only get yourself some more faith, duck! Or better friends, jump! Or make better financial decisions, look out! Well, then the lunging hammer guy goes away. So it's really up to you. Isn't being saved fantastic? Here he comes again, run! Hey, wait! Don't run back out the door! Why would you ever do that? Come back! 
Okay, maybe I had a little bit too much fun with that. I confess to you, it's very hard for me to be gracious with this teaching. To be gracious when it comes to this load of baloney that the devil has firmly planted within the church of Christ, and it's everywhere. I looked at so many quotes from so many health and wealth authors and preachers this past week. Here's one from the health folks. I am fully convinced, I would die saying it is so, that it is the plan of our Father God in His great love and in His great mercy that no believer should ever be sick, that every believer should live his full lifespan down here on this earth, and that every believer should finally just fall asleep in Jesus. No believer should ever be sick. Paul was sick. Every believer should live his full life span down here on earth. Paul died a relatively young man. And every believer should finally just fall asleep in Jesus. Paul was martyred, probably burned by Nero. How about this one from the Wealth and Prosperity Camp? Uh, This one is a hoot. It's Charles Fillmore's rendition of Psalm 23. The Lord is my banker. My credit is good. This is for real. He maketh me to lie down in the consciousness of omnipresent abundance. He giveth me the key to his strong box. He restoreth my faith in his riches. He guideth me in the paths of prosperity for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk in the very shadow of debt, I shall fear no evil for thou art with me. Thou preparest a way for me in the presence of the collector. Thou fillest my wallet with plenty. My measure runneth over. Surely goodness and plenty will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall do business in the name of the Lord forever. Are you kidding me? How does he even dare do that? To God's word. I... What's unfortunate is that the vast majority of health and wealth false gospel is not this obvious. It lurks around the edges, teaching you that, well, if you only had more faith, then material things would be better. Teaching that if you only had more faith, then God would heal your sickness. Listen, please. Let me tell you about our seeker-sensitive God. Here's a biblical seeker-sensitive. God tells us and warns us repeatedly up front the long, hard road that is waiting on the other side of an all-out commitment to Christ so that we can be prepared for it and ready when it comes. That's seeker-sensitive. Praise God that He does that. Why would we edit that out? Even worse than that, why would we instead guarantee smooth sailing? There's a shipwreck. Guarantee smooth sailing when betrayal from even our closest disciples or friends and shipwrecks might just be around the corner. Why would we do that? It's beyond me. Well, 
You know, it's not really beyond me, I guess. I suppose it's done because it's a more popular message. It fills churches with thousands and thousands of people. But, my friends, it's a false good news. It's a false gospel. Don't fall for it. By the way, guess what one of the first tests the Bible gives us in determining whether something is a false teaching? Second Peter, chapter 2, I believe. One of the first tests the Bible gives us for discerning a false teaching is that it will be popular. And of course, this health and wealth false teaching is popular. Why wouldn't teaching that Jesus is the genie in the lamp that guarantees money and health in this life taps right into our materialistic culture, doesn't it? Shoot, if that were true, sign me up. But it's not, necessarily. Now, it doesn't mean everything popular is false. There are other tests for false teaching, too. But it does mean that not everything popular is true. And if anyone here today has been told, if you've been told God wants you healthy and wealthy, guaranteed in this world right now, so long as you have enough faith or the right prayer or the right friends or the right whatever, and you're wondering why your life is still hard after coming to Christ, let me assure you, number one, there's nothing wrong with God because God was decent and loving enough to tell us that's not true. And two, your health and wealth in this life doesn't necessarily depend on the amount of faith you have. Because God tells us up front, we will be persecuted. In fact, if you want to measure health and wealth against your faith, here's the biblical scale. The more faithful you are, the more enticing a target you are for the hammering head guy himself, the devil. And why might that be? Because you pose a greater threat to him. And let me add, if you are healthy, and in particular wealthy, in particular wealthy, then welcome to our church and be sure to stop by the offering plate on the way out and give some more. Just kidding. If you are healthy and wealthy, then praise God for it. Because it's only by His will that you are. But let me add, He gave you your health and wealth because He trusts you, desires you to use it to glorify Him. And so are you. Are we? There's nothing wrong or sinful with being healthy or wealthy. It doesn't mean necessarily your faith is bad or you're doing something wrong. But if we're healthy and wealthy and use it to glorify ourselves rather than God, well, now we got a problem, a biblical problem. It's not impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus says it's really, really difficult, and not because God doesn't love rich people. But because God knows how tempting it is for us when we have money to trust in it rather than in Him. Oops, that's the sermon from two weeks ago. And God knows it's difficult because He knows how tempting it is for us to turn our God-given health and strength and wealth and prosperity into pride and into means for our own glory and not God's. That's why it's difficult. 
Luke draws out the journeys of Jesus and Paul to show us that once we commit to complete our God-given mission, especially when we are determined to finish well and get after finishing well, the closer and closer we get to bringing it home, that road is long and hard. Bishop N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, and I'm sure for many of you too, N.T. Wright puts it this way. Paul has decided it is time to go to Rome. From then on, the scene is set. Messengers are sent ahead. Paul must get to Rome. And almost at once, all hell breaks loose. That's what happens when the gospel begins to challenge the principalities and powers. Look what happens when Paul makes the turn for Rome, the riot in Ephesus, the warnings of the prophets on the way, Paul beaten and arrested in the temple, the trial before the Sanhedrin, the plot against his life, the trials before Felix Festus and Agrippa, a two-year imprisonment, a horrific storm at sea, a shipwreck, and last but not least, a snake attaches itself to Paul's hand. And, And come on, if you were skeptical about the suggestion that Luke is trying to compare Jesus and Paul. Well, here Luke tells us this strange story about a snake from a fire piercing Paul's hand. N.T. Wright is right. All hell breaks loose when we strive to finish well. And does anyone really think for a second that if Paul had just believed more, none of this would have happened? Had the right friends? It all happened because he believed so much. Because he threw himself into his mission. So finishing well means expecting the unexpected. And by unexpected, I mean a long, hard road. See, I think... Sometimes we get caught, I know I do, sometimes we get caught focusing only on the ends and not on the means, only on the destination, but not on the path there. We're an impatient people. We want to get to the point. Just tell me, don't make me wrestle with it, give me the answer. Life is indeed a journey full of ups and downs and even even though for those in Christ it ends in one amazing up that doesn't mean on the way there we won't have downs we do this with biblical heroes sometimes too we we focus only on their great times or great accomplishments or how well they ended we forget the heartache and pain they experience along the way Take Moses. Wow. Got to go to Pharaoh, all those plagues. You know, the Red Sea, leading the people. Cool. Yeah, and all that and more was indeed wow. But the man had plenty of long, hard road along the way. Kills an Egyptian in anger, hides out in the desert for 40 years, spends another 40 years because 10 spies blew it. (laughs) He strikes a rock, doesn't even get to enter into the Holy Land. Moses had a long, hard road. What about Isaac? How much fun was it, do you suppose, 
being tied up by dad, realizing dad was about to sacrifice you. Or Jacob running for his life from his brother. Or Joseph being sold into slavery by his own brothers and rotting in an Egyptian prison because of a woman's scorn. Or Ruth losing her husband and leaving her home. Or David running for his life from Saul. Running for his life from his own son. And so many more for David. Or Job, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, but Job gets it all back and more in the end. Hello, his ten kids are still dead. And his marriage probably needed a little counseling. <laughs> Curse God and die, she said, you remember? Him. His pain and suffering on the journey to the end was epic. And P.S. health and wealthers, this for the most righteous man on earth. And of course, Jesus' journey to the cross. And now Paul. And a long, hard road for us too when we choose to complete the mission God has given us. So expect the unexpected. When we expect it, we're prepared or we can get prepared. Like New Orleans, building a levee for the next hurricane. We're not surprised. We're not blindsided. We see it coming. And so we can lean into it and meet it head on. So help us God. And it may nevertheless hit hard. It may hurt. It may even knock us down. But it won't defeat us. God promises. Which brings us to next week's message. And I hope you come. Because I'm breaking now at a point that makes me nervous. What did you learn in church today? Christianity is a long, hard road. So please come next week to hear the rest of the story. It's a story, it's a story about what a sovereign God promises us on that long, hard road that He tells us is coming. Please don't miss that part. I'll give you a preview. God's on the road with us. More on that next Sunday. I'll close one more tease for next week. There's an old poem that was made into a hymn. And it offers encouragement for those on the long, hard road of following Jesus. The poet John Greenleaf Whittier writes... Here in the maddening maze of things, when tossed by storm and flood, to one fixed ground my spirit clings, I know that God is good. And if my heart and flesh are weak, to bear an untried pain, the bruised reed he will not break, but strengthen and sustain. We'll unpack that a bit more seven days from today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for warning us 
that life is a long, hard road. Help us to heed that word of love and encouragement and warning by preparing ourselves for when it hits. Ultimately, Father, so that the world may know there is a God and salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone when we weather that storm. So help us, God. Father, we love you. Thanks for the blessing and opportunity and joy that it is to be able to get together this morning and hover over and in your word and to shake hands and look into eyes and to be with people, brothers and sisters, as family. What a huge blessing that is. Thank you so much for the comfort of others. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and receive God's blessing, His benediction, His good words this morning from Second Peter. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. I love you guys. Drive safe.